0: Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through to 15. Let's read what God has to say to us. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's just pray before we come to God's word. Our Father, we thank you for your word to us tonight. We want you to speak to us and to change us. We come before you. We ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to understand your message to us. And we ask that you will send us out in your service. Change tonight. In Christ's name. Amen. Well, what we're going to be doing over this weekend is we're going to be looking at those verses from Titus. And we're going to be taking about a verse... Each time, and we're going to look at it really carefully. You might want to get together with a friend and learn these verses over the weekend. And it's my privilege, because I'm uh, the first speaker, to introduce the book to you. So before we get to our verse tonight, which is chapter 2 and verse 11, which says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, we're going to begin by looking at the context of this. And we're going to be looking at the context so that we can understand more about God's grace. Well, the context is this. An older Christian, Paul, is writing to another Christian leader, Titus, who doesn't have quite so much experience and is in a difficult situation in the island of Crete, which is in the middle of the Mediterranean. And when we look at the beginning of Paul's letters, we often find the first few verses give us a key to the whole. So, what we're going to do to get the context, we're just going to look carefully at the first few verses. Paul begins, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So, what's that mean? Paul has two jobs. One is to serve, servant. The other one is he's an apostle, a missionary, someone sent out by Jesus Christ. He's got two jobs and we have two jobs, to serve and to go. And then he talks about the terms of his employment, if you like, in uh, these two jobs, in verses 1 and 2. He says, it is verses 1 and 2, "...for the sake of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began." and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of our God and Saviour. So there are three things we know about Paul's call to serve and to go. Firstly, it is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now, in our society, when people talk about faith, They mean something really, really vague and mushy, don't they? Just some sort of warm feeling inside you. They talk about faith communities as if they're sort of groups of people who get together and they make faith to appear amongst themselves. But in the Bible, that's not what faith is. Faith is something grounded in God. And that's what it says there. It's the faith of God's elect. Now, people debate about what it means when it talks about God choosing people. But one thing is certain... Faith is grounded in God, not in our feelings. So you can't say there's mushy faith and then there's firm scientific knowledge or something like that. Faith is absolutely solid. The second thing we see about this is it's all for the sake of the knowledge of truth which accords with godliness. Well, you know about knowledge in our society, don't you? Knowledge, people think of as just information. Secular culture just think, you just need to know things. There's no moral dimension. And so people think, well, Wikipedia sort of brings together lots of things we know, and scientists find out more things. And, hey, say they've got to kill some stem cells to find out some more things, that's fine. Because we just want to know more and more and more. But in the Bible, knowledge is connected with knowing God and doing what he wants. So, you could be the best, brightest person in the world, with all of those degrees and everything, and a complete fool in the Bible's terms, if you're not following God. So, what's the knowledge it talks about? It's knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. It's truth, but not just truth in the abstract, it's truth that changes lives. So, we've got firm faith, and we've got truth that changes life, and then... He says, and it's in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Well, what does our society think about hope? Well, according to the latest statistics, there are more young men in our society who kill themselves than are killed violently by others. That's in Britain. More young men kill themselves than are killed by others. That means we are a society which is in despair, without hope. What do people think about hope? People think hope is wishful thinking. Well, we as Christians have real hope, because we have hope grounded in God. What does it say our hope is? Our hope is of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Now just think about this. Our hope is eternal life that goes on forever and ever and ever. Who promised it? God, who does not lie. That means our hope is completely solid, doesn't it? And he promised it. When did he promise it? He promised it before the ages began. So it's life that goes on forever and ever and ever, and God's been planning it from before the world was around. That's how big it is. God's great plan, and that's what we're messengers of. And who's promised it? God, who never lies. When did he promise it? Before the world began. To whom did he promise it? What do you reckon? Well, humans weren't around, were they? So it can't have been to humans. Maybe it was the angels, but I think it's even before that. I think he promised it to himself. God promised to himself that he would give eternal life back in the ages past. And that is the wonderful thing that we can go out and tell people about. God's plan to bring salvation back in the ages. And do you know what? God can't lie. So that means if God promises it, it's absolutely solid. Do you know if you are a believer, you're saved and your salvation is as certain as God himself. you thought about that. Your salvation that you will be for eternity with Jesus Christ is no less certain than everything about God. Wow! God has brought us into that. God can't lie. You know, some people loosely say, God can do everything. you ever heard that? Well, I tell you, God can't sin. God can't lie. God can't turn bad. There are all sorts of things God can't do. He can do everything that's good. He can do everything he wants to do. But he can't do anything bad, and that's the wonderful thing. And he can't trick us or cheat us. He can't lie. And that means we can know that we have eternal life and know that as certainly as we know God himself. Those are the amazing conditions that Paul had to deal with as he served and went for Jesus Christ. And you know what? Those are exactly the same conditions for us. That's what we have as a wonderful message of grace. And then it will talk in verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3, that that was what was planned in eternity, but at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. Paul says, wonderful message, and it's been revealed, and is to be revealed by preaching. That means you and me. That we, just as Paul then has to tell people about that, we have to tell people about the wonderful message of God's plan to give eternal life. And it's something entrusted to us. We are stewards, which means that we have to. We've got to look after this message and make sure it gets out. In fact, it puts it even more strongly. It's a command to go out and tell others. Who gives the command, verse 3? By the command of God, our Saviour. It's a God who loves to save, has told us to go out and tell others about him. Well, that, my friends, is the beginning of the letter. But we need to go on to get a bit more of the context before we get to chapter 2, verse 11. So, we look at what happens in Crete, verses 5 through to 15 of chapter 1. It's a pretty bad situation. Paul says in verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so, There's a problem in Crete. The problem is there's lots and lots of false teaching. Paul has a solution. And that is we need leaders who are people of absolute integrity as he describes them who are going to teach the truth. And you know what? That is what our society needs as well. Our society needs people who are going to lead who have absolute integrity and are going to teach the truth. My friends, can you be some of those? Can you have that integrity to tell others. And then the problem there was not just a sort of shallow problem of false teaching, it's in fact a deep, deep problem. Chapter 1, verse 12, is just how deep it gets. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars. Evil beasts. Lazy gluttons. Well, there you have it. What a great mission field. Huh? tough, isn't it? But that is the situation in which Titus had to work. We may sometimes have to work in tough mission fields. And then, and I don't know whether Paul smiled as he wrote this, chapter 1, verse 13, after he said that Cretans are always liars, he says, this testimony is true. So, on that very rare occasion, this particular guy said, now, I just want you to think about the contrast. We've got God, who never, ever, ever, ever lies, and the Cretans, who rarely do anything but lie. And, and you know, that is a picture of our society as well, isn't it? There are so many, so many lies out in our society. They're coming through the media, they're coming through education, all the time, people are just telling complete lies, myths about the way things are. What do we have to do? We have to teach the truth with complete integrity. And it's going to be tough as it was for Titus back then. There's resistance to the truth. Then we come on to chapter 2. Chapter 2 says more of the solution. We saw one part of the solution was to appoint leaders in every church who are going to be people of integrity and are going to teach the truth. But chapter 2 says, and in fact, everyone is to be involved. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, well, you can start. You teach what's Right. But then, chapter 2, verse 2, we want the older men. Chapter 2, verse 3, we want the older women. Chapter 2, verse 4, we want the younger women. Chapter 2, verse 6, we want the younger men. Now, in those days, there were no such things as middle-aged people, right? No, there were just young people and old people. That was all they had. So, if you've got all the young men and all the young women and all of the old men and old women, you've got all of the adults, right? And that's everyone who has to be involved in this task. And do you know what those people are called to? You can read it over the weekend as you read through Titus. They are called time and time again to self-control. And they are called to be working for sound doctrine to the older women, to teach the younger women, to teach, teach and hold forth what is true in a twisted society. And then he turns to Titus again, verses 7 and 8, and he said, you, Titus, you've got to be the example. And if you're on a beach team... You've got to be the example. Don't follow just what everyone else does. We have to follow God. Do you understand? It may be, even in a beach team, we can lead each other astray with bad examples. Well, we individually have the responsibility to follow God. And then, verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2, he turns to the slaves. Now think about them. They were people who had to work for someone else. They might not have been able to get to church if they had to work or something. It was really, really hard for them. What could they do? They could be flogged if they spoke out out of order. What could they do? Chapter 2 and verse 9. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not conferring, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine or teaching of God our Saviour. They are to help with teaching as well, even if they can't teach. Just by the lives they live to adorn the teaching. And that, my friends, is the context for our verse today. Chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Living the Christian life, spreading the Christian message in a situation of darkness... If we're going to do that, we need to know God's grace. Because if we look out at that situation and think, ooh, I've got to do a lot, you're going to get really, really depressed because we can't do it, can we? But if we think, wow, God's grace is with us to help us in all of this, that makes all of the difference. That is the motivation For living for the truth. We're not having to work our way up to God. We're not having to work our way to please God. God's grace has made us acceptable to him. And on that basis, we work. Grace is what those secular lies don't have. Those lies out in our culture. But grace is what we know about. And that is a reason for living with self-control, as we'll read a couple of verses later and be studying later in the weekend. So, let's begin our verse, chapter 2, verse 11. You can look at it in two halves. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Let's note, first of all, this is the grace of God. No one else has grace like this. If it weren't God's grace, it wouldn't be anything like as good. It wouldn't be wonderful. It wouldn't be reliable. Think about the beginning of the recession, Now, at the beginning of the recession, you remember, there were all sorts of people going around with vouchers, and they were wondering whether this voucher for the company that had just gone bust was going to be any use. Or they were going around with their guarantees, and they said, well, I have a three-year warranty from this company, but it's just gone bust. Is it any use? There were lots of great promises out in society, but the companies couldn't deliver. And there are loads of promises you can read about. You can go to the bookshops, all those self-help books, how to be healthy, how to be happy. They promise, 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 don't deliver. Watch Hollywood. Promises, happy life, doesn't deliver. But I tell you what, God does. God has the grace and the power to deliver on everything. What does grace do? be easier to ask, what does grace not do? Because it does so much. Well, what it says in this verse is it's appeared. And in fact, the word appear is a bit of a theme word in Titus. Look on to chapter 2, verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ. Or look on to chapter 3 and verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared. Now think about that. It appeared, but it was there all along. The wonderful thing about God's grace is it's there from eternity in God's character. It's not that God suddenly decided to start being nice. God has always been gracious and loving. But at a particular point, he showed the full extent of that in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sins. And so the grace appeared. And do you know what? The grace is there even if people don't know it even if they haven't seen it, it's the reality. And the reality in your life is even if you forgot about grace when you got up this morning, it's still there. God's grace for you means that he gives you everything and that you, now, if you're a believer, are absolutely, completely forgiven of everything, even the sins you didn't know you'd committed, even the ones you've forgotten about. Even you you wake up and you're in that groggy mood and you're not at all switched on spiritually, but God's grace is there. So what we need to do is retune our minds to the reality of God's grace. Do you see? We can forget the conditions we live in, the wonderful grace that He shows to us. So God's grace has appeared. Or as it put it back in chapter 1 and verse 3, that was all planned in eternity, but at the proper time manifested. What did God's grace do? Well, for this, I want to look on to a wonderful passage in chapter 3. And I want to read from chapter 3, verse 3 through to 6. Let's read this together. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Think about what he's done. We were foolish, spiritually, absolutely going the wrong way, led astray, full of hate for ourselves, for each other, and malice, envy, looking at each other and saying, I want to pull that person down. I want to be better than them. Enslaved, trapped, unable to get out. That is our natural situation. That's what we deserve to be in and that's where we deserve to stay. But when God, in his goodness, his loving kindness and his grace, came into our lives, what happened? God, our Saviour, Saved us. He just lifted us out of that situation. Was it our works? The good things we did? No. None of that could bring us to God. But in fact, his righteousness made us stand upright. His mercy, he worked in us so that we were born again and gave us the Holy Spirit richly through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. That is what grace has done. Think about that. And what does it say specifically in chapter 3, verse 7, so that being justified, made just by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Is the hope of eternal life something vague? Is it something uncertain? Go back to the beginning of the book. It's something as certain as God himself. That means that, the heir, being an heir, having an inheritance, is as certain as God himself. So what is grace? This grace that appeared. Well, it's something that worked in the past so we can be confident about the future. Remember chapter 2, verse 13. We are waiting for the blessed hope, and we remember that hope is not something uncertain. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ. We look forward to him coming back. And that's all part of the package. You can't take one bit and the other without the other. It's all there in what a Christian has. Grace is everything good that we get from God. Do we have any pictures of grace today? Some people might say that what happened recently with the Lockerbie bomber, was the person convicted of the Lockerbie bombing, was grace because after having been convicted of killing 270 people, he was let out on compassionate leave uh, when he was terminally ill. And people say, well, he got a lot better than he deserved, and so that's grace. Well, I want to tell you, it's not. And I want to use that really as a contrast of a picture of grace. You see, we have been convicted of a far, far worse crime, than what that man was convicted of. That was a terrible, terrible crime to kill that many people. But we have been convicted of the crime of turning our back on God and of acting to kill his son, Jesus Christ. But, grace is not cheap. So, grace doesn't say, you haven't quite paid all the penalty or have just paid a bit of it and we're going to let you off. Grace pays all of the penalty. So if you think about that guy, it's all of, the, um, all of the punishment that there would have been in a fully just legal system for killing 270 people. That is what grace pays and that is what has been paid for us. And then he doesn't just let you out so that you can die. It lets you out so that you can live forever and ever and ever in the fellowship with Jesus Christ. And it doesn't just let you out with some cloud hanging over you that actually justice hasn't been done. It takes away the conviction. There's a not guilty over you. Think about that. So it's a really, really different thing. What we have is that we go from being condemned criminals who are going to serve out indefinite death penalties, if you can have those, whatever it is, you know, to being free, having an inheritance that is going to last forever. That is the grace which God has shown to us and it is not something that's cheap. It's something he paid for because he gave his own son. So, that's the first half of chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. And then it says, bringing salvation for all people. Now, salvation is a big theme in Titus. And it says six times it has the word saviour. And I want you to read these times together and think what's going on. There's a form of alternation, and I want you to spot what it is. We can look first at Chapter one and verse three. It says the command of God our Saviour. Chapter one, verse four, grace and peace, from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Saviour. Chapter two, verse ten, the doctrine of God, our Saviour. Chapter two, verse 13, the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 4, God, our Saviour. Chapter 3, verse 6, Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Do you get it? There are six times and every other time it mentions Jesus Christ and the other time it says God, our Saviour. And in the big climax of the whole letter that we'll be looking at in a couple of days, it says, our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. When you meet those people on the promenade, or perhaps they come knocking on your door, who tell you that Jesus Christ is not God, we can have a Mass lesson with them. It goes like this. How many Saviours are there? You see, Titus only speaks of there being one Saviour. You remember the Mass? The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. And yet there are not three gods, there is one God. The Father is the Saviour, the Son is the Saviour, and yet there are not two Saviours. There is one Saviour. And this is put deliberately so that we realise that God is our Saviour, Jesus Christ is our Saviour, and there is one Saviour, and Jesus Christ is God. He is the Saviour. But how does Paul put it? Does he say Jesus is the Saviour? Well, he is the Saviour, but he doesn't say that. All six times that Saviour occurs in this book, it says not the Saviour, but our Saviour. I remember um, Werner Wright, who had a wonderful illustration of a penknife and it was, he gave a story of how this little boy was telling about his penknife and there was the wonderful long blade and he, you know, had of course the screwdriver and all the other things, the tin opener and he said, what do you think the best thing is to his friend? His friend said, I think it's the long blade and he said, no, the best thing is, it's mine. <laughs> and you know, that's the wonderful thing about Jesus Christ that he is our saviour and you know what? He's our saviour, but... His appearing has made it possible to offer salvation for all people. Look at what it says in chapter 2, verse 11. Bringing salvation for all people. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved but Jesus Christ. And that means from God's grace, everything he's given us, we have to go out and we have to tell people that he is our saviour, that he is the saviour, and he can be their saviour, if they put their trust in him. He has done everything, absolutely everything to save us and everything to equip us. And that is why we, with joy, can go out and serve him. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you might help us to go out and tell others about you, the Saviour. We thank you that you've saved us by your grace And we ask you to come in and prepare us for mission. For Christ's sake, Amen.